Welcome everybody to this book launch. Uh, welcome to Lagos by Jibundu Musu. Um, my name is Johan Heimstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa, co-hosting this launch with uh, Joel Smoot. And we're very glad to, to be able to cooperate with you uh, on this. Um, this launch uh, forms part of, um, of the Norwegian Council for Africa's wish to, uh, to highlight to the Norwegian public the many, many facets of Nigerian politics, society, culture, and history. Um, Nigeria is an immensely diverse country. Uh, and holds both great promise and uh, has quite a few challenges that we think is important to for for Norwegian uh, for Norwegian public for Norwegian policymakers for Norwegian businesses to to be aware of, and that's why in the course of January and also some uh, some into February uh, we are hosting a, uh, a series of of uh, uh, seminars. We only last week hosted a, an Africa Now, uh, our monthly seminar on uh, housing issues and urbanization in Lagos. Uh, this uh, workshop obviously um, goes hand in hand with, uh, with that in many ways, uh, focusing on Lagos. But only tomorrow, actually, tomorrow we are also launching a report. Uh, together with Hate Speech International on uh, getting beyond the headlines uh, on Boko Haram. Um, so that's going to be at Literaturuse and in mid-February during the Human Rights, Human Wrongs Film Festival we will also screen a, a film called Nowhere to Run on climate change, uh, climatic changes and environmental issues throughout uh, Nigeria. And we'll also host uh, uh, a debate with, uh, among others, Nimo Bassi, uh, following that screening. So uh, I think I think that will be all on, on our on the Norwegian Council for Africa's Nigeria-related uh, events. Um, however, I would like to just also briefly say that it's possible to become a member of the Norwegian Council for Africa uh, this year, actually. Uh, is the 50th anniversary of the former anti-apartheid movement currently uh, an organization working both on the dissemination of information and policy influence. We rely heavily on our members, so please, if, you, if you're interested, talk to uh, one of, our, our, of my colleagues afterwards or today. Now, please, uh, Andreas and Jipo. Thank you. All right, um, good afternoon everyone and uh, welcome from my part as well. My name is Andreas Delset. I uh, usually work at the House of Literature uh, with the program there, but uh, now I'm on paternity leave and then I can be here. Uh, and I'm very grateful for being here. Uh, and then let me start by saying so welcome to Oslo. Thank you. We're looking forward to saying that to the author of Welcome to Lagos, but welcome to Oslo, yeah. Yes, yes, thank you. It's my first time in Scandinavia, so like, 
everything I do, it's the first time I'm doing it in Scandinavia. Your so, first cinnamon bun? Yes, my first cinnamon bun. <laughs> so yes, I went to the Louvre earlier, like my first time I've gone to the Louvre in Scandinavia. Um, there should be a plaque. I'm going to make a badge. Wonderful. Uh, and thank you for writing this book, Welcome to Lagos, which just came out. Um, you're the author of, of two books, with, counting with this. Uh, and uh, your first was called uh, The Spider King's Daughter. Um, uh, you're also uh, a history uh, graduate and uh, doing a PhD in history and a musician, which we will learn more about in a short while. Uh, but today we're focusing mostly on your literature. Um, and I have some topics on my list, just some small issues like politics, money, religion, literature, you know? Small questions. Um, you know, as with any good novel, uh, um, yours encompasses a lot of issues. There's a richness in the text that, uh, that makes it impossible to, to touch on everything. But we will try to do it as well as we can, and then the audience can join us uh, towards the end and fill in with all the questions that we forgot. Um, but I thought we should start, uh, and the book is, is called Welcome to Lagos, as we said. And we're going to focus on Lagos, but I thought we'd start outside Lagos and start with you reading a bit, if you please. Okay, so I'm going to read from where my characters are moving from, they're on a bus and they're going from Bielsa to Lagos. Um, I'm actually very excited to see people here. Like, I don't have any family members in Norway and like people came to see me. <laughs> How exciting, unless some of you guys are related to me, you can see me at the end. Um, okay, so this is them from Bielsa to Lagos. Between Bielsa and Lagos. The headlamp shone on an empty highway, the driver barely dropping speed as he swerved round potholes. Chike felt safer watching the road. When a bump appeared, he pressed his foot on the bus floor. When they swung round the car wreck, he tilted his head to the left, his reflexes joined to the driver's. On either side, the forest crowded, the arc from the front lights brushing the outermost branches. All around him was the rhythm of sleep. Gradually, as the driver did not fail and no accident befell them, the road began to lose interest. He brought out his pocket Bible and the emergency torch he always carried with him. The book slid open to the Psalms. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. How easy it was to appropriate these words and twist them into something personal. The snare was the army, the fowler was the colonel, and the bus. Where did the bus feature in this nest of metaphors? The men of his platoon would have been interrogated by now. He hoped they would return to base before reporting him missing. Not just for his sake. They would need a story with, with details they could all remember. Even if questioned separately, they would not budge. He turned off his torch and put the Bible away. How long till Lagos? It was like London, they said. Everything was new and expensive. Big cars. Models you would never see anywhere else in Nigeria. Large houses, money everywhere. And under these fantastic stories of riches, 
always a layer of unease, of daylight robberies and mysterious disappearances. The woman beside him no longer breathed evenly. She gave no other sign she was awake. Her arm remained resting on his, where it had fallen in her sleep. She was crying, he realized. Excuse me, is everything all right? Chike asked. I thought everyone was asleep. Do you need a light? I found what I'm looking for, she said. She blew her nose softly, the mucus sliding out in a rasp. He laid his head on the window again and watched the road. A few moments later, she began to cry again. Are you sure there's nothing I can do for you? I'm tired, but this man's driving won't let me sleep. And I checked before getting on the bus. He looked responsible. How am I going to manage to Lagos? Will it be your first time in the city? He asked. No, but I can't wait to arrive. I tire for this Niger Delta. It's so dangerous these days. Once you step out of your house, you're afraid. If it's not kidnapping, it's armed robbery or assassination. Yes, Chike said, it's becoming something else. I hope you don't mind my asking, but if I was trying to find somewhere reasonable to stay in Lagos, where would you advise? You can try Ojota or Ketu. That's around where I'll be staying. I haven't even told my cousin I'm arriving tomorrow morning. I called her number, but it's not going through. Do you have an address? Chike asked. Yes, of course. I just hope she won't turn me away. I'm sure she won't. Why are you so sure? Nobody knows I'm going to Lagos, she said, her voice suddenly cracking in a sob. I'm running away. Chike was the one who had drawn her out into conversation, and now he wished he had left her to her tears. My husband beats me, often. My mother said I should prepare his favorite soup for him, ofe and sala, with plenty stockfish. My brother says I should beg him. They've all told me to stay, stay so the police can discover my dead body. She blew her nose, a loud snort rushing into her tissue. Softly, oh, no enjoy yourself, the driver said, instead of him to focus on what he's driving. I'm going to feel very embarrassed tomorrow. I wish I could make you forget everything I've said. I can tell you my own secret, Shike said. Grown, like, grown man like me, I'm scared of Lagos. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So we have um, these two uh, people on this bus and a few more in the back. Mm -hmm. um, and they are uh, all uh, running away from something mm -hmm. uh, on their way to Lagos. And that's the start of this book. But how did the, this book start for you? Okay, so I had a dream. I actually had a dream. This is not like the story I tell when I come to Norway. <laughs> so I had a dream of two soldiers um, and I was kind of fishing around for what to do for my second novel so I'd finished The Spider King's Daughter um, and it was with my agent at the time she was looking at it and writing reading it to make suggestions and so I had some spare time and I wanted to start writing my second novel and I wanted to write a novel with a large cast of characters so I had this dream that started off with these two soldiers in the Niger Delta and it was really really vivid um, what happened in the dream 
didn't quite make it into the novel, but um, <laughs> just the two soldiers, you know, about to commit an atrocity <clears throat> that it, it's not quite what's described in the novel, but that it was incredibly vivid. And then I woke up and I was like, wow, I should write this down. I never ever write down my dreams, just in case you think like every night I like write down my dreams and take it to like a psychiatrist. I'm like, what does this mean? And see, I never do that, but I did. I, this particular one was so vivid, I wrote it down. And then it was like, what if another character joins and another character joins and another character joins? And then I was like, yes. And then I had like my ensemble cast. Um, and that's how the novel started. Um, sadly, I got kind of carried away. So there was a point where I had like 20 characters <laughs> and the book made no sense. Um, and I had to kill quite a lot of my characters, actually. Hard. Yeah, it was, it was really, like, I lined up, lined them up against the wall, and I was like, defend yourself. Defend your place in this novel. And if you couldn't defend it, next. And those five on the bus, they, they defend their place. Yeah, yeah survival of the yeah, fittest. They do, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you talk about this atrocity that you, you dreamt about, mm -hmm. these soldiers doing. But then in the book, you've written in uh, something that is based on a real event yes. right could yes. you could you tell us something about that because we are in Bayelsa in the in the Niger Delta, the Niger Delta right? Delta, yeah. yes so that's like our oil producing region and it's um does Norway have oil you guys have oil as well okay you've managed it a little better <laughs> um, a little we manage your oil as well oh you manage ours Very as well, well. Yeah. oh Very, yeah. that's not really good we don't like that I'll talk to someone after this um but um so yeah, so that's the oil producing region, incredibly contested. People who live there, the money from the oil is not really used to develop the region. Um, so yes, it is incredibly contested, and it's often in the news. And large environmental Yes, yes, issues, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what was your question? You know, the, the, there's, the, there's this incident that triggers uh -huh. uh, Chike uh -huh. and Yemi, these two soldiers, yes. escaping. So there was a massacre, there was an actual massacre there. I think it happened, I don't want to say the year, but it happened either... 99. 99, yes, I was going to say late 90. I had to do my research, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Did more research than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so there's this village called Odi, um, or town rather, it wasn't really a village. Um, and two soldiers were killed, allegedly by militants or freedom fighters or whatever, depending on which section you're looking for them. And these are people from the region who are fighting to say that the oil money should be used in the region. Um, so these two soldiers were killed, and then soldiers went back, went into that region, and sacked the town, destroyed everything, just went and did a lot of havoc and mayhem. And it's like a fairly famous incident, but I think the thing with Nigeria is that you know another atrocity comes, and, and it's kind of been forgotten, but around the time anyway, it was a lot of news, um, that Odi massacre. And I describe kind of something similar. So, I mean, if you know a little bit of the history of Nigeria, you immediately make that link that I'm trying to describe something um, similar. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, but it's, a, it's a controversial thing where, where it's still contested what happened. Oh, and yeah, who did yeah. what, and it implies the, it implied the then president, right? Of Asanjo yeah, as well, yeah. and it was a big, uh, controversy right so i'm not trying to name drop um but i actually met Obasanjo. um <laughs> but it was it was in a it was in a big space so it wasn't just like me and him and um, but i mean so this is the former president of nigeria who was president at the time 
And I think this kind of happens with sometimes with Nigerian leaders. Um, you kind of become an elder statesman as long as you go, <laughs> which is a very a very low standard. So he's been. I mean, he did other things fantastically, I guess. Um, but this particular massacre. So he was kind of holding forth about how, you know present governments have failed in their management of the army. And when I was president, you know, it was all kind of wonderful and fine. So me being me, I was like, uh, excuse me. But I'd like to ask about Oti and like his body language, like he just bristled. He was kind of like, what happened? I was like, what do you mean what happened? I was like, the massacre happened. And then he was like, he gave some non-answer um, about how he didn't order a massacre. He just ordered um, the culprits to be found. And in between his order and what happened, well, a whole town was destroyed. Classical way of escaping responsibility. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. 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 So, but and that was just to, to I wanted to, to emphasize that event when we start off because uh, clearly uh, there is a lot of parallels between your fictional novel and uh, the realities of Nigeria today uh, in the book uh, uh, but this is the only one that i found that is very directly uh, like uh, linked to to real history although there will be much more that we will come back to but this event is what triggers the novel so yeah. to say because these are this is where these two soldiers chike and yemi they start they desert the army and they and they decide to escape uh, and they decide to go to lagos to hide and on the way they pick up this other the, the rest of the ensemble mm. also escaping and they go off to 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 lagos uh, and they're on this bus um uh, but uh lagos doesn't turn out to be as welcoming as your title suggests mm. to these guys uh, but i think we need to start with the basics because uh, uh, if norwegians in general know anything about lagos it is probably the fact that lagos is a big city uh, if they knew that at all uh, Lagos is a mega city. It's about 21 million people now, I think. I didn't know people keep playing yeah. football with the numbers. It's a lot of people. According to the Council of Africa, <laughs> that we are that is hosting the event, it's 21 million, and it will probably by 2050 be uh, twice as big, uh, and by then the third largest city in the world. Uh, and there is uh, probably 2,000 people arriving, estimated, every day like these people into Lagos, right? Mm. So, uh, but I wanted to, because we don't know that much about Lagos, can you, and this is, this is where you're also, where your debut novel is set, and this is your, your the city of your birth. Yes. So, can you give us a sense of what kind of a city is Lagos? Okay, so now I don my official robe as the ambassador of Lagos, um, so yes, I don't know, like, I grew up in Lagos, I was born there, um, and my experience of Lagos and childhood is actually very different from my experience now I've gone and come back, and now I've lived elsewhere and, and visited again. And when I was growing up, Lagos didn't really feel like a big city, it didn't feel like the image of Lagos that's, the footage I've seen of Lagos from the time when I was living there. It was just, you know, school, home, church, um, just very, just like any, growing up in any kind of fairly middle class kind of area. And now, 
when I go back, I think you see more of the pace of the city. Um, and I suppose, because when I lived there, sitting in traffic for two, three hours, that was normal. That was absolutely normal. And then you live elsewhere and you come back and you're just like, oh my gosh, how do people live like this? And then you become the annoying person who for like the first week you're like, oh my gosh, how do you live like this? And then all your friends who haven't moved out are like, can you just pipe down and shut up? Um, and then you fall back into the rhythm of things and then when you leave, you're like, how do people live in any other way? Because um, there's so much energy, there's always something happening. Like, I always say like, when you're going from A to B in England, like you just leave your house, you just get on the train, and then you get there. Whereas in Nigeria, like the journey is part of it. You know, you might see something, somebody might hit your car, you might have to come down and fight. You know, <laughs> there's just so much that can go on in the journey even before you get to your destination. Um, but yeah, you should definitely visit. Um, you guys should all visit Lagos, um, and I'm going to get a cut from the Ministry of Tourism. So. When you go, say Chibundu sent you, so I can get my 10%. And something tells me from reading your novel that it would probably be a much more pleasant arrival for us uh, oh, yeah, coming yeah. from here than for the characters in your book. Yeah. Uh, and, and they are uh, a lot of, like we said, a lot of people arrive in Lagos every day uh, to try to make a living, mm. probably many from economic reasons, yeah. we assume. Uh, but not your pack, at least not all of them. They are escaping, they are running away, they are mm. planning to hide in the city. Uh, but it, like I said, it's not a very pleasant city they arrive in. Mm. And you don't paint a very positive picture of Lagos. Oh no! <laughs> well, I don't know, I don't really think of my work in terms of positive and like negative. That's not really like what I'm trying to do. I mean, sometimes at readings, I don't know if there's anyone who's going to ask that in the questions, Q&A section, but I, let me just answer you now. Um, but like sometimes at readings, someone will stand up and say, oh, you know, why are you showing this about Nigeria? You know, you should only say this when you're saying in public. And to some extent, I get that, um, you know, because Nigeria has been so bashed by CNN and New York Times and The Economist, etc., etc. And then the novelists come and add their yeah. own, you know, negative portrayals, quotes. Mm. But um, I don't, um, I just don't think about it like that. Like, I think I'm very interested in my character's lives. And I'm also very interested in people who, I'm interested in the different ways you can arrive into Lagos. So it's not, um, Lagos can be like that, you know, you're coming in on a bus, you're coming into a very hostile city. Um, there's a journalist in the novel, Lagos can be Lagos for him, which is a very plush environment, um, which is a life of ease, which is a life of servants, you know, it, almost Victorian in the way it can be. Um, Lagos is the life of the journalists I show when they come in, and they come in by air. And I think what's very interesting is that depending on what baggage you bring to the city, that's how you're going to view it. Mm. So when Chike and the rest come in from rural Nigeria, you know, they come in, and like I had this experience. I went to my village in Nigeria for a week, in eastern Nigeria, where there's very little electricity, no internet, hardly any reception. So to come from that and come into Lagos, like the pace of the city, you're just like, oh my gosh, there's so much infrastructure, there's so much this, there's so much that. Whereas, Maybe someone coming from Norway, you know, you're coming from all this, 
And this is what the journalists see when they arrive. They just say, everything is run down. Nothing works. You know, everything is just... And it's that, it depends on what perspective you're coming with, how you see the city. Um, and so Lagos is hostile. But even for someone like Fineboy, he sees, that's another one of my characters, he sees it as a place of opportunity. And which is how it is presented in the West African region, if not just, if not for the whole of Africa, it's very cosmopolitan. There are people from all over West Africa that come to do business, come to trade, and it's definitely a place of opportunity. And mm -hmm. uh, as much as I don't want to admit it, I probably, my guess would be more like the journalist towards the mm -hmm. end, I'm assuming, yeah. Uh, and you, and it, it, you, you show this very well, how, how people, how people arrive in Lagos and see the city very differently. And I, I don't think I don't want to talk too want to talk too much about how these, uh, especially the guys on the bus, see this because that's the part that you need to experience not in my words, uh, but in your written words, especially mm -hmm. specifically, um, because this pack arrives and there's a lot of stuff happening. Um, but uh, there's one there. All of these guys they are coming from the outside into Lagos. There's mm -hmm. only, uh, but there's one character that is actually from Lagos, Ahmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, the journalist and editor-in-chief of the Nigerian Journal, mm -hmm. which you must have had a lot of fun uh, yes. coming up with these. Uh, many of the chapters start with these small uh, cutouts from the excerpts from the Nigerian Journal newspaper um, from different sections, from the, from the weather section, I think, from the fashion, from the, fashion, from the <laughs> uh, ask questions about your business career section yeah. and so on. Uh, which you made up, I'm assuming. There's no Nigerian journal. There is no Nigerian journal, but again, it was loosely based. And I mean, I don't want to make because it is not the original newspaper that it was loosely based on, but there was a paper called 234 Next, which was fantastic. So the founder of it is not like Ahmed Bakari in the sense that he was actually a journalist in America and he won the Pulitzer Prize, very kind of esteemed Nigerian-American journalist, and he moved back to Nigeria to found this very cutting-edge paper that had good production values and wanted to be anti-corruption and just wanted to be the best thing since sliced bread. And it was, the quality was really good, but sadly the economics of it, the money, the finance part of it just didn't make sense and it folded. Um, and it was really sad when it folded actually, I was one of their uh, avid readers. Mm. But Ahmed is is uh, born and bred in in Lagos, mm. uh, in a in a very in a in an upper class politically connected yeah. family, and he goes off to study in in the UK, mm -hmm. and then he comes back, right? So would it be fair to assume that he his gaze on Lagos is the closest to your own? Uh, first of all, I didn't mean. I realize that came out more provocative <laughs> than I I had planned it. Uh, um. First of all, my parents are doctors. I have no political connections. Um, but in the sense that, yes, he does go to school abroad. That, has, that, was, that is my experience. Um, and I hope I'm more, I think I'm quite idealistic, but I think I hope I'm more aware. I think for someone like Ahmed, he's just not, very aware of all the contradictions of his life. So he, com he comes from a political family, um, but yeah, he wants to be an anti-corruption crusader. And 
just the paradox of that, he doesn't want to dwell on at all. He just, um, and he's still a beneficiary of that corruption. Um, but again, I must reiterate and say, my parents are doctors. They have nothing to do. Oh, Actually, my, 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 uh, let, me, <laughs> let me just underline the, 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 my point about them in the question is mm -hmm. rather about the, this, this perspective of, of uh, actually coming from the city, uh, mm -hmm. leaving it and then coming back mm -hmm. and, uh, and how, how his, his uh, perspective on the city changes mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and this, this kind of dualistic uh, movement back and forth between London and, and Lagos, which I'm, I was thinking maybe you, do you relate to that? Do you, has that, how has that influenced your, you as a writer writing this book? It influences you because you know you can leave. Um, and so like, your experience of Lagos, I think you're more easily frustrated. And you know you have the option that you can leave. You know that if everything <coughs> is terrible and things go wrong, I can still hop on a, on a plane and be back in the West. And I think sometimes that's where the like, friction, we call them IJGBs. It's an acronym for I just got back. Because apparently people who move back to Nigeria and after every sentence, oh, I just got back, I just got back from the UK, from Norway, from wherever. Um, and um, there's that friction between the IDGPs and people who actually live there. Because there's the kind of perception that, you know, if things start heading south, you're just going to hop on a plane and leave. You know, you're not as invested mm. as people who actually don't have that option mm. so easily. Mm. And and Ahmed, uh, he well, we, he leaves at some point. Yeah, I'm not going to say why, but because that's part of the intriguing plot of this book. But uh, he he's the one, he he can leave. Yeah, he can leave. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, uh, but a lot of a lot of the of the book deals with um, with uh, with money. Mm -hmm. So we need to talk about money. Yeah. And it says at some point in the book, it says how to how to make something of yourself in Lagos, money. How to marry a woman used to finer things, money. To get in the respect in the city, money. It all came down to the money. Mm. Uh, and a, a big issue in your book, and as in the as it seems to be in Lagos, is inequality mm. and the access to money. Um, how 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 did you where 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 did that kind of come from, in and into this novel, for you? I think because I'm a writer and writers don't often have a lot of money. Obviously, that theme was very heavily on my mind. So, like, I think inequality is everywhere in the world. You know, there's a number called the Gini coefficient that they used to calculate inequality and it's rising everywhere in the world it's rising in america it's probably rising in norway i don't know but it's rising everywhere in the world. it's rising but it's the least in the world yeah. oh really okay you guys are still doing well well done norway and um, no, we're doing we're doing bad but we are we had a good start <laughs> yeah. um but um i think what's very interesting about nigerian inequality is how stark it is um so i went to school in england from when i was 14 um, and it was a private school. And I remember one of the um, girls, we were, we were talking about wealth. And 
the English literature teacher was making the point that wealth is comparative and it depends on how on how rich or poor you are on basically what one person's wealthy can be another person poor um and so this girl in my class to illustrate the point um said you know that in england you know we are upper middle class you know but in like africa we'd be like super wealthy um and i was like uh which part of africa are you talking about because Wealthy in Nigeria is the same as elite, the global elite everywhere else. So once you hit that class, you know, like you have, which is why um, Tejiko, a Nigerian novelist, you know, he took, um, he took um, umbrage. He was annoyed by that hashtag first world problems because he was like, you assume that you don't have an iPad, you know, in the third world. But no, wealthy in Nigeria is the same and more. Um, but the thing is then, Poverty is the poverty in Nigeria that is different. It's not the wealth, um, and that inequality is it, it's so stark. Um, it's um, it's just um, and I don't know if it's something that you have to even come back to notice because definitely, like again, in the first week when you go back for the first time after an, a long absence, you just notice that there are a lot of new cars in Lagos. The latest of everything, you know, like. There's like Mayfair has nothing on the cars, car places you can go to in Lagos. But then at the same time, it's the poverty, it's the poverty that is different, that level. Mm. Mm. And then, uh, uh, and well, we read um, in Norwegian newspapers, we could read very recently an article by Olutim Hin Ade Gibeye, you know her, a journalist, uh, writing about. Uh, the displacement of poor people in order to build uh, luxury housing for the rich in Lagos uh, around the lagoon. Uh, and you also send your group uh, at some point into, uh, well, you send them both into one of these neighborhoods that yeah. has been renovated, as they probably would call it, mm. uh, and, uh, and uh, fenced off uh, with guards, uh, mm. not allowing anyone to enter unless you have something to do there and mm. so on. Uh, like the zonas in in Mexico, it seems. Ah, okay. Anyway, uh, and you send them also to Makoko. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to informal settlements, and to the informal settlements in the traffic machines. Mm. Uh, so uh, this landscape of of zoned uh, luxury housing, uh, people living in under bridges mm. in traffic machines, uh, and then also this. Which was quite new, uh, new to me. I didn't realize this uh, before I read your book. This closeness to the to the sea. Uh, mm. There's uh, to the lagoon and to, yeah. and this Makoko. Can you tell a bit about Makoko? Okay, so they call it like the floating village. Um, so it's they're just houses on stilts, and it's a massive settlement. Apparently, there are up to a hundred thousand people living there. It doesn't really look like it when you drive past, because you can see it from a bridge called Third Mainland Bridge. Um, and the government has been, for the past kind of maybe five, seven years, has been trying to demolish this place. Um, and they call it um, an informal settlement, but it's been there for decades. It's not It's not something that's just sprung up recently. Um, and it's this idea that there's this new kind of cosmopolitan, modern Lagos that the government is trying to now portray that kind of looks just like kind of 
the city center around the station actually just a lot of high rises you know that's the lagos that they want kind of like dubai the nigerian government is always mentioning dubai like as the model for life and death and everything in between um and makoko just doesn't fit with that um, and it's not just Makoko. In fact, most of Lagos does not fit with that. So I think they're going to demolish all of us um, in their bid to create this like glass and steel kind of um, place. Um, and I really wanted to write about Makoko because the reason why their hands have sort of been averted, this is kind of me musing, not because I've done any extensive research on this, but um, there's been a lot of attention on Makoko. Um, and it's been mentioned in the, from places in the New York Times because there was a, a landmark piece of architecture that was built there, the Floating School, and it got a lot of media and international attention and because it was built in a really sustainable way. They built it with, with um, oil barrels that were empty and all of that. So it's, um, it's become a, a landmark. It was and the centerpiece of uh, this huge uh, African uh, exhibition, okay. contemporary art at the Louisiana Gallery. Okay, yes, exactly. Last year, yeah. exactly. Um, and so because now people outside Nigeria are like, oh wow, Makoko is such a cool place, they are being sustainable, they're doing X, they're doing Y. So now Lagos is like, oh yeah, Makoko is not that bad. Um, so hopefully, um, with things like this, you know, like, it's to look at the place I knew, like it would be an excellent place for tourism, you know. Uh, my mom says it's um, Nigeria's um, Venice, but I prefer to say Venice is Italy's Makoko. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th these people, the people living in Makoko, they, uh, they are not the people of money. Uh, uh -huh. But money rules. Uh, and then into your book, you, you uh, suddenly introduce a huge pile of money, ten million dollars. Yeah, uh, we're not gonna say where they came from, mm. uh, uh, and we're not gonna say what they're gonna do with those money. But that becomes the central mm. question: what to do with this money? And I have to say, I mean, the the, the way you introduce this money, um, and the question of what to do, what's gonna happen with this money, uh, works very effectively in in showing also this the kind of relativity of moral codes mm. of judging right from wrong uh, in in a, a, a kind of a life situation that's very far from where we're sitting now mm. um, and in surprising ways um, uh, and uh, and uh, and as uh, Chike probably your, is he your favorite character is he my favorite He's my favorite. He's your favorite. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think that says a lot about your dream. Okay, tell me. Um, no. <laughs> so, like, for example, so one of the characters is called Fine Boy, and kind of he's like the typical. Or maybe he's my favorite. He's, <laughs> he's a typical kind of Lagos hustler, always looking to grab opportunities or to create opportunities or to force opportunities or to steal opportunities and that's my cousin's favorite character and I think she's a um, she's like that she has that you know straight little bit crooked not crooked enough to end up in jail but always looking for an opportunity whereas obviously Andreas is a very you know, abiding very Norwegian very Scandinavian and um, so yes if you take a poll well, he, he, he's the he's the guy that doubts he doubts for like how long is the novel? 350 pages? Yeah. He's in doubt mm. all the time. 
Uh, but it's fine, but he, I, he's the kind of a character that I wrote him off, like, very early. Mm. It's like, whatever. Uh, I mean, he's there, that's fine, but... But he is the... He is the real protagonist. He's the guy that is moving things forward, right? Yeah, in a way, in the sense that, like... And I think that happens, like, when you have, like, a group of, of friends. Sometimes, like, someone who you you think is the person everybody asks for advice or is the leader or is the one who always organizes you emerges but then and that's cheeky and that's cheeky exactly mm. but then sometimes you know somebody in the group will just kind of surprise you or in a crisis they will be the ones that will actually then mm. step forward and mm. actually do stuff mm. Um, mm. yeah and and but cheeky uh, turns to the bible a lot mm -hmm. uh, and uh, religion it's not only, I mean, it's obviously uh, forms an important part of the, the narratives that uh, dominate when we talk about Nigeria and Norway, to the extent we do, with Boko Haram. And, and uh, if anyone knows anything about the trouble in Nigeria, it's usually explained by ethnic and religious divide between uh, uh, ethnic groups that correlate strongly with religious um, antagonists or, 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 or not. Yeah. And you discuss this a lot in your book as well. Um, but um, yeah, and Ahmed reflects early in the book on on the changing nature of religion. Mm. In can you say something about the role religion plays in Nigeria? Okay, so I think Lagos is when it comes to religion is is unique. So like the story you hear about you know Nigeria when it comes to the news is um, religious clashes, Boko Haram. Christians are being killed by Muslims or vice versa. And I mean, I'm not saying these things don't happen, um, but I think that's definitely not my experience of living in Lagos. It's a very pluralistic um, kind of city. So for example, um, first of all, I'm Yoruba and Igbo. So my dad is Igbo, my mom is Yoruba. My mom is from a Muslim family. She converted when she was a teenager. Her father had four wives, not all at the same time, but four in total. Um, one of which was my grandmother. Um, and so they're just this, and my father comes from a Christian family in the East and they met and they live in Lagos. And so these things kind of, people just get on with life. Um, not that it's some sort of hippie paradise and we all hug each other <laughs> and like, you know, it's not that, it's not that at all. But at the same time, we, we need to work together and we need to make money most importantly because money is the most important thing so like i'm just going to forget you're from a different tribe or you're from a different religion because we have to, to make money um but um the faith particularly in the book i wanted to with chike especially who ruminates and thinks a lot about the bible um i guess i wanted to like come at religion from a different perspective so often when you hear about religion in nigeria it's either Islamic fundamentalism, or it's um, rabid Pentecostalism, and you know the super pastors are ripping off everybody, and you know it's also terrible. And and I just wanted to look at because I'm a Christian. I wanted to look at faith from the inside, from how people experience it, from how people actually engage with the religious text, as opposed to all the other. Things that are laid on top of that. But it's the way that this this group of people um, mm -hmm. uh, they they read from the Bible mm -hmm. every night. 
is this uh, because they're, they're after us because there's they are doing a lot of very untypical things mm. in this group uh, but uh, is this a uh, I mean, in the sense that what they do with the money, for instance. Hmm. It's not a very normal story, I would assume. Uh, but uh, what, or is it? I don't know. What's no? normal? What's normal in Norway? No, I, I, it, I, I, would, I would say that it's rather unlikely that $10 million turn up like that, and that uh, someone is able to do what they are doing with it. You're, you're wondering very much now what they're doing with this money. Yeah? You'll find out soon when you go home with the book. But... Um, uh, let, let's leave the money uh, okay. like that, but they, they, and, and stick to the manuscript. Um, the Bible, this, mm. this way of interacting with the Bible, it's very beautiful. They read a lot from the, the book of John, mm. uh, and, and they relate, obviously, a lot to the book. Mm. Is this, a, way people, is this a, a type of religiosity, a way of, of interacting with the book that uh, people do? Okay, so like, this part of the book is perhaps like semi-autobiographical. So when we were growing up, both my parents were Christians, and we used to have Bible study every single morning. Or as I say, Mondays to Fridays, and we got the weekend off. So but really, it was only Saturday off, because Sundays had to get to church. Um, so Mondays to Fridays, we'd wake up like maybe an hour earlier before we went to school, and we'd just all be like, why, this is not fair, but you're too young to say no. So you sing hymns, and then we'd read from the Bible. Um, and... That was kind of how it was. So like my dad would be the reader, my dad would be cheeky, but then we were allowed to challenge um, and we were allowed to say, what does this mean? You know, and he would explain and somebody else would say something. And there was that very um, communal aspect of it, which some of my other friends who are, who are Christian have also said that, you know, we had similar in our family Bible study. It's not every morning, every Saturday morning or fairly, fairly frequently. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to explore that interacting with text. Mm. Yeah. That works very well. Um, we need to jump a bit because time is flying fast. Okay. I, I, uh, there's a, it's a question, it's a kind of a meta question, We're jumping a bit out of the book uh, and to, to your writing circumstance. I mean, your, uh, your book was uh, published by Favour and Favour. And you you've been living in in uh, in, the, in London since you were fourteen, right? England. England. So I went to school in Winchester mm. first. Um, and you write in English, mm -hmm. uh, and you publish in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. But um, how, how do you think about uh, who you write for? Who do you write for? I obviously write for every single person in this audience, which is why you're all going to pick up a copy of the book after this. Um, yeah, I write for you guys. I don't know. I don't think about these questions, and like I don't think anybody thinks about these questions until they invite you for like an event like this, and a nice person like Andreas is sitting across from me, and they're like, "Who do you write for?" I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I don't. There's nobody present I mean, when I write it, it. For an Norwegian author, I think it's it's uh, in in many ways a, a bit easier because you write in usually Norwegian writers write in Norwegian, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very small language, mm -hmm. and so you know very well who your primary market is, mm -hmm. and maybe you have ambitions about writing for everyone and so on. But I'm, I'm imagining that it, it, it's a bit different when you are writing in English, mm -hmm. and you uh, have, and your literature is taking place in, in Lagos, mm -hmm. uh, and you are sitting in England. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and do, do you think you don't think about who who is going to read this book? Do you clearly have ambitions about describing a society, uh, discussing, raising issues about the city and so on? Uh, did you do you imagine uh, people in Lagos reading it? Do you want that to happen, or do you rather, or is it more important what how it's read? It? Yeah, yeah. So I definitely want people in Lagos to read it because obviously the book is called Welcome to Lagos and so like what you hope for is that people in Lagos read the book and they're like yeah she got it <laughs> um, but um, at the same time I always say like so there's Nigerian diaspora audience in England um, and you know they're very like supportive so they just see a book by a Nigerian author and they'll buy it you know just to like support <laughs> Um, and just because there's so, there are not that many of us published in England by kind of publishing houses like Faber. So, you know, they're just so excited. They're like, yeah, we read a review in The Guardian. We're going to rush and buy our Nigerian sister's book. Whereas Nigerians in Nigeria are way more critical. And they're mm. like, she didn't get this right. She did not get this right. She does not know anything about what she's talking. Which is so like, when I go for readings in in Lagos, in Nigeria, people are generally more combative, which also, which is also fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's good. It's interaction. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, you do many different things, like I mentioned when you when you started off. You've studied history. You write uh, non-fiction as well. You write in the Guardian regularly uh, about many different uh, issues, uh, and you also, as we will hear later, play music. Uh, uh, and you're a concerned citizen of the world, I would, I would say, uh, as we can see from your writing in The Guardian. Uh, but you, you have chosen primarily, it seems, to write fiction literature. Mm. Uh, why? Well, because I think that's what I, not that I enjoy most, but yeah, I think it's also partly that I do enjoy it most. Um, and it just comes maybe most naturally to me. I think. You have to learn how to write an essay, um, and I had to, you know, that's what you do, GCSEs, A-levels, subject, <coughs> argument, expound, conclude, etc. Whereas with a novel, like, there's no way of learning how to write a novel, like, you know, each one is different, each one requires its own kind of tools. Yeah. You write in the acknowledgement, no, acknowledgements, it's a difficult word for Norwegian, acknowledgements, uh, <laughs> Uh, you, it, almost as if you're dedicating your book to the city of my birth, my dreams, my frustrations, my imagination. Um, and you've also said in an interview that you would like one day to help shape the future of Nigeria by running for public office. So I was thinking, since we have a, this, uh, the, it's the Council of, uh, on Africa hosting this event, and. Uh, we're discussing the future of Lagos uh, through the series of events. We could uh, we could do a series of uh, questions on uh, uh, Chibundo, the politician. Uh, <laughs> what to do with Lagos? Well, you see, this see, this is part of the problem being diaspora. So this is problematic um, because you guys can't vote. <laughs> It's no use um, launching my political career in Oslo because um, yeah, you're not actually much use to me, guys. Yet. Um, but, um, and also, more seriously, this is a problem like I find with politicians that come from the diaspora. It's like, you know, 
worked in the World Bank, worked in the UN, that's all very well and good, but and so, like, what does that mean to people who actually live in Nigeria? Um, and I, I remember watching a video about this young woman who'd won, I wouldn't name it, but a president in America started this thing where he would move young Africans to America. Um, and, you know, so this woman who'd been accepted on the program and was very prestigious, you know, she was gushing in the video and she was like, you know, that she's so touched that, you know, like a president of America can recognize her work and it shows her that what she's doing has value. And I'm saying, no, it's not when the president of America recognizes your work, that, it's when the people in Syria learn that you are with, recognize the value of your work. Mm -hmm. Then that's when you can say your work has value, not, um, not to say that um, I won't appreciate um, support in the press, in the Norwegian press for when, <laughs> I, when I attempt my career. But um, yeah, you can't vote. <laughs> but you say uh, you, you, I, it seems to me like you're airing out a lot of your frustrations uh, and also your uh, imaginations about Lagos in the book. But uh, can you say something about your dreams for Lagos for what? the future? I have a dream. Martin Luther King got there first. Um, what do I want Lagos to look like? Um, so I think infrastructure is important. Like, it's not the main thing, and it's not. I went to a really good talk um, where the man who was speaking, Father Matthew Cooker, he's a Catholic bishop, was saying that you know democracy is not about building roads. That actually. Um, the best infrastructure is built by dictatorships, and you know he gave many good historical examples. Um, you know Nazi Germany, apartheid South Africa, etc., etc. Um, so you know democracy is not just about infrastructure, but I think there does need to be that basic level um, of infrastructure, running water. Um, there is running, not that there's no running water in Lagos, just more evenly spread and more equally spread things like that. Um, but then also education, and um, that's actually where I would want to do the most with education, actually, because that was his whole thesis, that democracy is about giving people, individuals, more space and room to achieve, to fulfill their potential. Um, and that's really what's not happening in Nigeria, is that there's a lot of wasted potential. There are lots of geniuses walking around, a lot of Mark Zuckerberg, a lot of you know, people who can do amazing things, it's just that they haven't been given the opportunities. And the education would be my thing. And um, yeah. Good answer for a politician. Yeah, yeah, thank, you. Yeah. thank you. It's a shame you can't vote. So do we have any questions for the politician from the <laughs> audience? Yeah, please. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, a question about the last thing you said about education and yourself being a, a historian, mm -hmm. I learned that the, the subject of history is removed mm -hmm. uh, from uh, high school in Nigeria, from secondary level. Yeah. Could you just talk about kind of why that happened um, mm -hmm. and, and what you think about it? Um, I mean, to be fair, before history was officially removed, I wasn't taught any history in secondary school. So like, I think for a while it's been on the syllabus, but like no one was actually teaching it. Um, and I think part of the reason why they took it off was, um, I don't know, they just felt like things like the Nigerian Civil War, controversial, controversial things. Um, but then the problem with that is that 
when you don't teach the controversial topics and people just make up whatever they want about the controversial topics and there's no national consensus on what actually happened. Um, and that's the same reason why they banned the movie, the film of Half of the Abyssal for a while, for the same reason that, you know, Biafra, this is a controversial issue, you know, we don't want, you know, old wounds to be reopened by people watching this film. Um, and that's kind of like a common theme, like, let's not talk about the past because it can divide this kind of precarious present that we have. But then the problem with that is obviously like the reason why, one of the reasons why our present is so precarious is because we don't talk about the past um, and things just, you know, the cycle of violence, of atrocity continues. So yeah. Anyone else? Please. People hear the question. I repeat it. No, uh, is there? Do you see a potential uh, in literature, in uh, in you know, say, uh, co cutting across uh, differences? Hmm. I mean, I think it already it already does to an extent. Like I'm looking at that poster, Chino Achebe, things fall apart, and mm -hmm. um, and Nigeria is a country that really like appreciates his writers and um, like Wale Shoenka, a Nobel laureate, he's like Beyonce, like you know, he can't walk down the street, <laughs> like literally, and um, they have these um, roadside, roadside painters that to show how good their work is, they paint celebrities and like Wale Shoenka's face is one of the celebrities that is always painted. Um, so there is that idea that writers do, the writers themselves as individuals do cut across ethnic divides and People and um, Walishenka in particular um, has been used as a go-between between the government and many troubled regions. Um, having said that, does the literature then bring people together? I don't know. In the diaspora, it does. So I know definitely a lot of people bond over Chimamanda, for example. That you know she's again a shining pride and joy, um, and that helps in the diaspora. But then I just. My first pessimistic note of the day, but I just I don't know if actually in Nigeria at the moment it is literature. Maybe literature can get us talking. I think that's one good thing that half of the yellow sun did. They brought the topic of Biafra out from under the carpet. So yeah, maybe. <laughs> I haven't seen any more hands. I think we are. This is the last question here, please. division so like the ethnic group that is originally from what well, again you know ori originally like who is originally from 
anywhere. Um, but the ethnic group that's originally from Lagos is Yoruba. And a lot of other ethnic groups have come in because you know, Lagos is a financial hub, etc., etc. And that has caused some friction, um, no doubt about that. But then at the same time, I think there's starting to be anyway, particularly in Lagos, an official recognition that while Lagos is so strong and so rich and so different from the rest of Nigeria, is because everybody comes there with their ideas, with their talent. You know, you want to set up a business, you go to Lagos, you have to be in Lagos. Um, and the current governor actually campaigned. So his campaign song was, um, in Yoruba, it's Bobo Wala Leko, which means everybody owns Lagos. Um, and that's the song he used to campaign, and he won, and he dressed in the clothes of the different ethnic groups that live in Lagos, and, and this idea that you know, Lagos belongs to all of us. Um, and it's not quite a reality, but it's definitely a dream that the people in power are working towards, which I think always helps when it's not just coming from people who live there. There's like an official stamp on that. Yeah. Okay, short, short final question. Yeah, I, I was just thinking I should not ask about the ethnicity, but I wondered about being a Lagosian, Mm-hmm. Because it, as a New York, I, I lived in New York for a year, mm -hmm. and there it's like if you live in New York, you're a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. If you like New York, that's it. How do can you to be a Lagosian? Do, do you need to be Yoruba? Do, can can anyone be uh, accepted as mm -hmm. a Lagosian? Well, some people would definitely say you have to be Yoruba, especially if you want to get into politics. Um, so. Um, I think, yeah, that's definitely still a thing. However, to operate in the city, to run a business, to settle down, to have a family, to thrive in the city, no, you don't have to be from a certain ethnic group. But still, there is still that kind of ceiling in the political kind of realm that it's Yoruba people that have to actually run things. But don't worry, I'm going to try and change that. I'll go back, I'll go back to you guys. <laughs> All right, I think we'll leave it there, uh, but not quite, uh, because there will be, uh, you will be singing for us. Yes, I'm going to sing. And um, I, I'm on thin ice when it comes to music, uh, even though Lagos is a city of music. and mm. uh, So maybe you can say something about that and bridge it from this conversation to the, from to, Lagos to, to music. music. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, Fela Kuti, who's like, again, he's one of those, exports that we have that we didn't really like rate him that highly until everybody was like, oh my gosh, he's so amazing. And they were like, oh my God, we knew, we knew, we knew he was so amazing. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to tell us. Um, so um, yeah, it's a city of music, um, live music especially, um, party music, clubbing. Um, there was a fantastic record released last year called Doing It in Lagos with like 80s funk soul disco mm. that I recently discovered. can recommend it to everyone. Yeah. Doing it in Lagos. Yeah. yeah. Listen to Doing It in Lagos while reading. Welcome to Lagos. <laughs> um, but what are you going to uh, sing for us? Yeah, so I'm actually going to sing and play the guitar. Um, Andreas plays the guitar but he has refused to be like, I begged, I begged. I said, Andreas, please. I don't play the guitar really well. I play the piano better. Um, but they have very kindly provided a guitar. And at my launch in London, we had like live music and like a seven piece band. And it was all very exciting. But um, we've had to 
downgrade things a little bit in your way. Um, <laughs> next time, <laughs> next time we'll come with the band. Um, so, should I stand? What should I do? How would this be? Should I go and stand? Uh, I, I, if you want to sit with the guitar, maybe that's easier. But and then, then I, I, I can move this for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look at that. And then I, I will say thank you now uh, and leave, leave the floor to you. For okay. that. And then uh, I assume that you would like to sign books out yeah, or something like that. So thank you all for coming. And I can do like Fredrik Skavlan does. <laughs> So, as I said, I don't really play the guitar, and Andreas has refused to oblige us. So, first of all, I'm going to do a, an Igbo folk kind of gospel song called Aka Akaya, and then I'll do a Yoruba song, and then I will teach you some of an English song because, like, obviously, I can't do all the same. Yeah. So you guys have seen as well because I'm in charge and I have the mic and nobody can stop me. Okay, so this is Aka Akaya. Andreas tuned the guitar as well, so if it's slightly out of tune, you know to play. Aka Akaya. Ooh, 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 ooh
quickly, I'll do the Obama very quickly and then you guys will sing. Um, because I'm not, um, yeah, you guys can't get tired. Like, you know, like you have to like keep the rhythm steady or else it like throws me off. Okay, no clapping in this one. This one is slower, so you guys have a bit of a break. And then the singing coins. Okay, so this is Yoruba now. That was Zippo. This is Yoruba.
guys. Well done. Okay, I'm showing you guys all my tricks now. So, um, yeah, the end. <laughs>